Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Second Kings chapters one and two. So we left off in Second Kings chapter one last week. The greatest prophet of the Bible, Elijah, has resurfaced. Of course, it's to bring a message of warning and doom to the latest king of the northern kingdom, Ahazah. Now, Ahazah has taken over the throne of Ephraim Israel from his father, Ahav, and our Bibles usually says Ahab. But this new king is sickly and weak and is now critically injured from an accidental fall from the second story of his home. And as he lay in bed, broken and near death, King Ahazah, in the customary way of all people of that era, sought a prophet or a, or a seer to divine the future and tell him whether he would recover from his injuries or he would die. But it, in an admission that he was of the same spirit as his father, he shunned going to a prophet of the God of Israel. And instead, he sought an oracle from the Philistine god Baal Zevuv, the Lord of the Flies. So he sent messengers to the Philistine city of Echon to inquire of this fly god on his behalf. But along the way, they were intercepted by Eliau who, dressed in typical prophet's clothing of hairy animal skins, and in obedience to God's instruction, told them that they should go back to their dying king with this message. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you should inquire of Baal-zebub? Therefore you shall surely die. In other words, the Lord says, well, you've determined that I, Jehovah, am not your God, therefore you're surely going to die. See, the implication is not that God's going to kill Ahijah. Rather, the Lord is merely going to allow the king to die as a natural result of the terrible injuries he sustained. However, at the same time, whereas God in his, his, his limitless power over life could rescue him, he could just order his body to heal. He's not going to intervene. Because Akazah has renounced Jehovah as his God. Well, when the bedridden king hears this message from his messengers, and he quickly ascertains that it was that old troublemaker Elijah who prophesied his death, he orders his soldiers to go and seize Elijah and bring him to the palace. Now, while the wording doesn't say so, the common understanding of the times was that a prophet could speak a curse onto someone, and then the God that served that, that prophet served would do his bidding and bring that curse about. So Akazah hoped he might bribe or necessary intimidate Elijah to retract his curse of death and instead call down a blessing of healing upon him. Let's reread part of chapter 1 to get our bearings to start today's lesson. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 9 to the end. Uh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings. 
2 Kings chapter 1. Still back in 1 Kings, all right. 2 Kings chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Then the king sent a commander of 50 to Eliyahu, together with his 50 men. And Eliyahu was sitting on top of a hill. And the commander climbed up to him and said, Man of God, the king says, Come down. And Elijah answered the commander of 50, If I am in fact a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up along with your 50 men. Fire came down from heaven and it burned up him and his 50 men. And the king sent another commander of 50, together with his 50 men. And he said to him, Man of God, the king of says, Come down immediately. Eliyahu answered them, If I am in fact a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up along with your fifty men. And fire came down from heaven and it burned up him and his fifty men. The king sent a third commander of fifty with his fifty men. Now the third commander of fifty climbed up and approached Eliyahu and fell on his knees before him. And he pleaded with him, Man of God, please have some regard for my life and the lives of these fifty servants of yours. I know that fire came down from heaven and burned up the two other commanders with their fifty men. But now have some regard for my life. And the angel of Adonai said to Eliyahu, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he got up and went down with him to the king. Eliyahu said to the king, here is what Adonai says. You sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Is it because there is no god in Israel you can, you can consult? Therefore you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died. In keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through Elijah. Yehoram began to rule in place of him during the second year of Yehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Other activities of Ahazah are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. So in chapter 1, verse 9, a company of 50 soldiers is sent to arrest Eliyahu. And it is said that they went to a mountaintop where he was sitting. How'd they know where he'd be? The sages of old say, that one of the peaks around Mount Carmel was Elijah's home. And it was well known. And as the company arrives, the captain shouts out to Eliyahu, Man of God! King says, Come down! In Hebrew, the words for man of God are Ish Elohim. And no doubt, the formal name of Elijah's God, Yehoveh, is intentionally not spoken as a not-so-subtle insult. The manner in which Elijah was addressed was impudent, disrespectful. And since Elijah was God's prophet, and because the cause of this confrontation was God's divine message of doom to the king, the affront was really more directed at God than it was at Elijah, whether that captain realized it or not. And Elijah replied that if he actually is an Ish Elohim, then the captain and the king know full well they have no right to address him in such a manner or to issue such orders. Thus Eliyahu calls down fire from heaven, meaning from the sky. And instantly the captain and his fifty men become cinders. And when Ahijah heard of this, he displayed that same kind of destructive stubbornness as the pharaoh of the Exodus. So he dispatched another company of 50 men. 
The captain of the second group repeated the arrogant command of the now-deceased first captain, but astoundingly even multiplied the disrespect by adding the word quickly or immediately to his order for Elijah to come down. The results, not surprisingly, were the same. Now notice that in the killing of the two groups of 50 men and their captains that the old Elijah seems to have reemerged. Elijah calls down fire upon these men in the same way that some years earlier he called down a drought on Israel, something God eventually overturned to show mercy on his suffering people. We should remember that Elijah was of a status not far removed from Moses in some respects and given even greater authority than Moses in other respects. The Lord had given Elijah discretion to take action that the Lord had not directly ordered him to do. And if Elijah ordered it, the Lord would bring it about. Now, of course, there were limits. And the Lord wasn't ever forced into a box having to do something he was against. And ending the drought before Eliyahu had determined it was time is one example of this. Yet, not that long ago, as Elijah fled from Queen Jezebel to Mount Horeb, Jehovah had shown him that gentleness and mercy and patience was the Lord's preferred way to handle those who were reluctant to do His will. Divine wrath was more or less a last resort. It was used sparingly. But Elijah seems to have been quite stiff-necked and equipped with a volatile temper and a militant attitude. Thus he was often too quick on the trigger to call down calamity upon those who from his perspective didn't do God's will quickly enough or to the extent he thought it ought to be done. Now let's understand that while Elijah was often wrong-minded in his use of his incredible authority loaned to him by the Lord, he thought he was acting properly to protect God's holiness. There's no evidence that Elijah was concerned with being personally shamed or insulted. And that is why God went to the trouble on Mount Horeb to show Elijah that while he appreciated Elijah's zeal and his, his loyalty, Elijah's actions ought to reflect God's character. And God's character is not to anger quickly or to destroy before offering substantial opportunity to repent. However, we, here we see that Elijah almost immediately has these two groups of soldiers burned up due to their insulting behavior. So when the hard-hearted king Ahijah heard that the second group was now also turned into ashes, he sent a third one with the same instructions. But the captain of the third group wasn't so arrogant as to have no regard for his own life or those of his men, so he approached Elijah humbly. And he bowed down with respect, virtually begging Elijah not to do to him what he'd done to the others. 
Now it's interesting to me that it's at this point that we hear from God again. God tells Elijah to do as this man asks and to go with him but not to fear him. So when the first two groups, the 50 soldiers, were, were burned up, we should recognize that it was at Elijah's typically harsh judgment. And there was no command from God whatsoever to do that. But it seems it must have been within the Lord's permissible will to permit it. But when the third group arrives and shows humility before Jehovah, the Lord quickly jumps in, indicating he's not going to go along with a, a possible third incineration, and essentially orders the great prophet not to harm these men, but rather to comply with their request. There is a story in the New Testament that connects hand in glove with this one. And I want to make that connection for you. Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to start reading at verse 49, just seven verses to verse 56. Luke 49, 9.49 rather, to uh, 56. Yochanan, John, responded, Rabbi, we saw someone expelling demons in your name and we stopped him because he doesn't follow you along with us. And Yeshua said to him, Don't stop such people, because whoever isn't against you is for you. And as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, he made his decision to set out for Yerushalayim. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village in Shomron to make preparations for him. However, the people there wouldn't let him stay, because his destination was Jerusalem. And when the, the Talmudim, the disciples, Yaakov and Yochanan saw this, they said, Sir, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Almost 900 years after the time of Elijah, Yeshua and some of his disciples were in the hill country of the Galilee. He was teaching them various principles. And as he did, he was revealing his character, which is, of course, exactly the same as the Father's. And that character operated from a foundation of gentleness and patience and mercy. And these disciples were on fire for God. They were passionate. They were sold out to Yeshua's leadership and teaching. And much as with Eliyahu, Elijah, their human instincts instantly wanted to start dishing out consequences for all those who opposed their master. Or in the case of the narrative of verses 49 and 50, on those who didn't necessarily hold to the same pure doctrines about Yeshua that the twelve disciples did. 
So in verse 51, as Yeshua knew that his time on earth was growing short, he decided it was time to go to Jerusalem. But he also decided to take a route to Jerusalem that went through Samaria. And in those days, Samaria was so despised by most Holy Land Jews that they would take a longer route to travel from Galilee in the north to the south, usually to Jerusalem, that took them to the east side of the Jordan River, down through Perea, then back across, rather than take the considerably shorter and more direct route through Samaria. But when Yeshua's messengers arrive at the city of Shomron, the actual city of Samaria, located within the Roman province of Samaria, in order to arrange for hospitality for their master Yeshua, the village people made it clear that Yeshua and his entourage weren't welcome there. And they said it was not because of who he was, but because of where their destination was. Jerusalem. You see, the Jews of Samaria had at this time separated themselves from the Jerusalem Temple Authority. They had set up their own rival temple, established their own rival priesthood, even had their own rival Torah. Even though, in truth, it was very nearly identical to Moses' original Torah. This refusal of hospitality by the people of Samaria was seen by two of Jesus' disciples as a great insult that brought shame upon their rabbi, Yeshua. All that is happening here is typical Middle Eastern behavior operating within their shame-honor culture. That's what we see here. And it always requires hospitality when it's asked for. But since it was refused, which culturally brings shame upon the one who was requesting it, the offended disciples inquired of Jesus if they should order down fire from heaven to kill them in retribution. In their thinking, that would restore Yeshua's honor. But of course, Yeshua rebuked them. He wouldn't allow such a thing. Now, no doubt the disciples were recalling Elijah. And this incident in 2 Kings 1, when they suggested bringing down fire upon the people of Samaria, was connected to that. They, of course, made this connection with what was going on with Yeshua because it was standard Jewish tradition that before the Messiah came, Elijah would return to herald him. The Jewish society of that day, so oppressed by the Romans, many feeling that they were living out the days of Jacob's trouble, what Christians call the tribulation, was therefore engulfed with messianic fervor. And so most of whatever happened to them, they viewed through the lens of the many messianic prophecies in the Bible. And they were impatient 
for the expected Messiah to reveal himself. And that messianic revelation necessarily involved the return of Elijah. But the disciples were confused. They had only recently learned that they had authority given to them by Yeshua to do things like expel demons, to heal the sick. Matter of fact, we see that in the very first verses of Luke 9. But just like for Elijah, there were limits to what they could order, which God would then in turn bring about. Elijah had been given great authority even to call down calamities upon people. Yeshua's disciples were not. Also recall that Elijah had been judged by God as too harsh on his people because of his quickness to employ severe punishment as related to his back in 1 Kings 19. So here God, in the form of Messiah Yeshua, was also judging the disciples as being too harsh. It says Yeshua rebuked them and they're wanting to destroy the townspeople of Samaria simply for insulting them, for not offering the expected Middle Eastern hospitality. Yet there's an important fundamental difference between the scenarios of 2 Kings 1 and Luke 9. The people of Samaria were not like those two groups of 50 soldiers who were burned up near Mount Carmel. Rather, the Sumerians did not connect Yeshua with Yehovah. However, the soldiers and their captains who came to arrest Elijah knew full well who Elijah was and that he represented Yehovah, God of Israel. Further, the folks of Samaria, they weren't out to get Yeshua or to arrest him or to harm him or his disciples. They were mainly just irked that their city was located along the main thoroughfare for people who were passing through on their way from Galilee and and the north down to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews who came through Samaria thumbed their noses at these despised Samarian Jews and they were sick of it. Frankly, there were scores of self-professed messiahs and and prophets running amok throughout the Holy Lands. Most of them either hanging around Jerusalem or on their way through Samaria to Jerusalem. And for these Samarians, Jesus and his gang was just another one. So while it's important for us to make connections between the New Testament and the Old... And from this, learn about our obligations to God and and how to behave as followers of Christ. We must not become too caught up in our zealousness and make rash decisions about how to deal with people who oppose us. Like what happened with these two disciples with whom Yeshua had to rebuke. And we are to study and understand both Testaments well so that we can see what's actually occurring, as I just explained. Rather than making a bunch of false assumptions, we are not to adopt either Elijah's attitude or 
the attitudes of these two disciples of Yeshua. Rather, we are to adopt Yeshua's attitude of gentleness and patience. Back to 2 Kings 1. Elijah accompanies the third group of soldiers who are no doubt greatly relieved not to have become like charcoal briquettes back to the king's palace. And Elijah repeats directly to the king what he said to Akazah's messengers some days earlier. Apparently the fear of God had been instilled in the king's royal court and no one tried to harm Elijah. And equally apparently the king must have accepted his fate because in verse 17 we're simply told that shortly thereafter he died. This chapter ends with some synchronization between the reigning kings of Judah and of Ephraim Israel. And this allows me just a moment to hopefully straighten out what can be a very confusing situation. So stay with me on this. Unfortunately for Bible students, we have an anomaly occur in which both kings have the same name. This is not a scriptural error. It just so happened that King Ahijah's brother was named Yehoram. And Jehoshaphat's son was also named Yehoram. And since King Ahijah died without an heir, his brother Yehoram took over the throne of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel. And for a while he ruled at the same time that Jehoshaphat's son Yehoram ruled in Judah. And by the way, modern English Bible scholars have tried to help us out a little bit by assigning slightly different English names to these kings. Often, King Yehoram of Judah is called Joram, and King Yehoram of Israel is called Jehoram. Just know that this was not contrived to harm the text, but to help us distinguish one king from the other. Let's move on to chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. The time came for Adonai to take Eliyahu up into heaven in a whirlwind. Eliyahu and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal when Eliyahu said to Elisha, Please wait here, because Adonai has sent me all the way to Bethel. But Elisha said, As Adonai lives and as you live, I'll not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the guild prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that Adonai is taking your master away from you today? Yes, I know, he answered. Say no more. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please wait here, because Adonai has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as Adonai lives and as you live, I'll not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The guild prophets of Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that Adonai is taking your master away from you today? Yes, I know, he answered. Say no more. And Eliyahu said to him, Please wait here, because Adonai has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As Adonai lives, and as you live, I'll not leave you. 
So the two of them went on, and fifty of the guild prophets went and stood watching them from a distance while they stood by the Jordan. So Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water with it and the water divided itself to the left and to the right so that they crossed on dry ground. And after they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double share of your spirit be on me. And he replied, You've requested a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, you will get what you asked for. But if not, you won't. Suddenly, as they were walking on and talking, there appeared a fiery chariot with horses of fire. And as it separated the two of them from each other, Eliyahu went up into heaven in a whirlwind, and Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father! My father! the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And then he lost sight of them. Seizing his clothes, he tore them in half, and then he picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen off of him. And standing on the bank of the Jordan, he took the cloak that had fallen off Elijah, struck the water and said, Where is Adonai, the god of Elijah? But when he actually did strike the water, it divided itself to the left and to the right, and then Elisha crossed over. When the guild prophets of Jericho saw him in the distance, they said, The spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. And advancing to meet him, they prostrated themselves on the ground before him and said to him, Here now, your servants include fifty strong men. Please, let them go and look for your master in the event that the spirit of Adonai has taken him up and set him down on, on some mountain or in some valley. And he answered them, Don't send them. But they kept pressing him until finally embarrassed he said, send them. So they sent 50 men. And for three days they searched and they didn't find him. And on returning to him where he was waiting in Jericho, he said to them, I told you not to go, didn't I? And the men of the city said to Elisha, My Lord can see that this is a pleasant city to live in, but the water is bad so that the ground is causing miscarriages. Bring me a new jug, he said, and put salt into it. They brought it to him. He went out to the source of water, threw salt into it, and said, This is what Adonai says. I have healed this water. It will no longer cause death or miscarrying. The water was healed, and it has remained, remained healed to this day, in keeping with Elisha's spoken word. Elisha left to go up to Bethel, and as he was on his way up the road, some boys came out of the town and began making fun of him. Go on up, baldy! Go on up, Baldy. And he looked behind him, and he saw them, and he put a curse on them in the name of Adonai. Whereupon two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. He went on from there to Mount Carmel and then returned to Shomron. Well, here we have what has to be one of the strangest stories in the Bible. The story of Elijah being taken away by God via a storm wind, or in, in Hebrew, a serah, not a whirlwind, by the way. Now many, perhaps most, modern Christian scholars now take this story as but a Jewish fairy, fairy tale. Mostly because the entire concept of miracles 
is becoming politically incorrect within especially the liberal wing of the modern church. That is, everything written in the Bible must be accounted for rationally and naturally, if not scientifically, or it's considered a myth. But there's more to this story of 2 Kings 2 than only Elijah being translated to heaven, as is the usual viewpoint. To begin with, and we're going to touch, on, touch again on this at a later time, the English term heaven is in Hebrew, Shamaim. Shamaim. And it can mean heaven, is where modern Christians view that God lives, or it can mean the cosmos, where the stars and the planets hang in space, or it can mean the sky, where our atmosphere is and the clouds float. So the question here is just one of the which which one of these was in the author's mind at the time. The first words of this chapter begin the time came for Jehovah to take Elijah up into heaven. The underlying meaning of this is that Elijah's imminent disappearance marks the end of an era. Just as with Samuel anointing the first king over Israel, Saul, and then more or less retiring into the shadows, marks the end of an era. Or better, I think we should see these two events as transitions from one era into another era. When Eliyahu was alive, there were so many prophets in Israel that they actually formed guilds. They lived in prophet colonies. But when he was miraculously removed by God, the era of the spirit of prophecy for Israel vanished, along with Elijah. His protege, Elisha, carried on. But otherwise, prophecy became rare in Israel. Didn't end, but it was rare. Now, what separated Elisha from the hundreds of other legitimate prophets in Israel? The, ancients, the ancient rabbis say that it was his fierce commitment to Elijah and because he instantly gave up everything in order to carry out his commission. They say he was like Joshua who completely dedicated himself to Moses and so deserved to be the next leader of Israel. The story opens with Elijah and Elisha on their way from Gilgal to Bethel they'll wind up in Jericho. All three of these places had substantial prophet colonies and no doubt that was the reason they were traveling there from one to the other. Eliyahu asked Elisha to remain in Gilgal as he left for Bethel. But Elisha insisted on going. And when they arrived at Bethel, the guild prophets greeted them and asked Elisha if he was aware that Elijah was soon to be taken away from him. And Elisha responded that yes, he already knew, but that they should speak no more of it. Now while speculative, I think the rabbis are correct in saying that the reason for Elisha wanting this knowledge to be kept quiet is that Elijah had made it clear to him that this was a private matter. And what was about to occur wasn't for public viewing. Then as Elijah readied 
to leave for Jericho, he again asked Elisha to stay behind. And Elisha refuses and vows he'll never leave Eliel's side. Now some sages say that this was a loyalty test for Elisha. But that hardly seems realistic to me. Elisha had stayed close to Elijah for a long time now. There's no hint of Elisha being anything but steadfast. Rather, it is more likely that Elijah felt he needed to do this alone. And that while his future was unclear, Elisha's place was clearly as Eliyahu's replacement. And just how this going up into heavens what happened was also uncertain. Not only that, but obviously God had revealed that he was going to take Elijah and had revealed to him the day and the place. Apparently the Lord had not included spectators in his instructions to Elijah, so Elijah was reluctant to allow any. Now upon arrival in Jericho, the guild prophets who lived there, they also approached Elisha and wondered if he'd been told about what was going to happen. He answers them the same way he did the Bethel guild prophets, by telling them to just keep silent about it. But I think that inherent to their question to Elisha is a hope that he is Eliyahu's anointed apprentice. Maybe he'll have more details about what is coming. Elisha apparently knew of the planned journey from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho. But once in Jericho, Elijah surprised Elisha by telling him he was now going to walk to the Jordan River, which was just a short distance east of Jericho, and that Elisha should stay in Jericho. Again, Elisha refuses to leave Eliyahu's side. Now we need to grasp what a momentous, if not scary, day this must have been for Elisha and the many guild prophets. See, Elijah had been their inspiration, their unquestioned leader for many years. Now their leader was just going to walk out into the wilderness and never come back. What was really going on here? Was Elijah going to merely die? If so, how? Violently? Mauled by wild animals? Peacefully lying down going to sleep? Was he going to be bodily lifted up and deposited at some other location by God? See, I can't help but notice how similar in nature what was predicted for Elijah's disappearance. Verse 1 says Elijah would go up to heaven in a storm wind. How... how similar this all is as compared to the so-called rapture that is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we'll always be with the Lord. There is a never-ending debate within Christianity as to just what this event's going to look like what it really is. Some point to the book of Matthew 
as speaking of the same event and therefore adding a bit more information about it. Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in a field. One will be taken and the other left behind. Then there will be two women grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken the other left behind. However, as the many uh, scholarly views of tribulation, Christ's return, the millennial kingdom, all of this shows us there is no consensus how, on how exactly this rapture is going to go down. Because there is only the faintest of scriptural reference to it. The barest of information about it. Despite many books written by supposed experts about the rapture, probably the best known being Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, each author proposing extensive details about how, if not when, this is going to happen, we're realistically left in the same position as Elisha and those many guild prophets were. Something miraculous is going to happen that removes Eliyahu from their presence, but what is it? Thus in verse 7, as Elijah said his farewells and struck out for the nearby Jordan River, 50 of the guild prophets couldn't stand not knowing. So they followed at a distance hoping to just catch a glimpse of these mysterious events about to unfold. And in some strange way, it seems they even wanted to be there to perhaps rescue Elijah, if need be. And when Eliyahu and Elisha arrived on the west bank of the river, Elijah removed his prophet's mantle from his shoulders. He rolled, rolled it up to kind of mimic a staff. And he struck the waters of the Jordan, Moses fashion. And behold, it parted. They both crossed over on dry land into the Transjordan region and no doubt they walked a bit further. Now Elijah seemed to know that whatever was coming was imminent. So he told Elijah to tell him now whatever he might want of him. And Elisha responded that he wanted a double portion of the same spirit that Elijah possessed. Meaning the spirit or the gift of prophecy. And Elijah said that this was a hard thing for him. And this is because he had no, no control over the amount of spirit that anyone could receive. But that if it was granted to him by God, the sign of it would be Elisha's ability to observe Elijah's departure. Here's a good point to pause. Speak about something the ancient sages and rabbis refer to as the many levels of prophetic inspiration. Even in our story of Eliyahu and Elisha, we see at least three levels of prophetic inspiration. That of the ordinary guild prophets, the, the next level up with Elisha, and then the highest level with Elijah. But the rabbis say that the highest level of prophetic inspiration ever was contained in Moses. This was a whole other level. And this 
is indicated in many ways in the Torah, with the most obvious being he was the only man who ever spoke face to face with God and lived. I think these various levels of prophetic instruction are quite real and still to a considerably lesser degree in operation today. However, we are told that as the end times approaches, the spirit of prophecy is going to begin to return in abundance. Daniel 12.4 But you, Daniel, keep these words secret, sealed up in the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. And this in Joel 3.1 After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. I don't think this predicted era has begun yet. Because when it does, as it was with Elisha and Elijah, the prophets will prophesy and it will happen precisely as they tell it. And the world is going to hate them for it. Right now we, we have some Christian people who prophesy very broad general things without times, without details, and then when something vaguely similar happens, they claim credit. And when it doesn't happen, they just adjust the prophecy and continue on with some more. Or more often, they see current events happening, they offer their opinions or claim that the Lord told them on where this is all going to lead, and they call this prophecy. Now that's stretching the matter considerably. Rather, the level of prophecy actually occurring in modern times is probably a bit like those guild prophets of old. In the sense that for the northern kingdom of Israel at least, there was no functional priesthood. And the people of the northern kingdom weren't allowed to visit the temple in Jerusalem. So the guild prophets were the teachers of God's word in Israel at that time. However, there is some implication, perhaps a few were occasionally given true prophetic insight. So the New Testament now type of prophecy that seems to be the level of prophetic, prophetic inspiration operating shortly after Messiah's death and so in our time is that a teacher of God's word is said to be prophesying even though the intent is not to say that that teacher sees the future or that they're getting a, a direct oracle from God. However, someone like Paul or John or Peter, well, they were on the next level up from a teacher when they were given a deeper level of inspiration and, and were considerably more than teachers of the Word. They were given additional divine understanding that forms part of our Bible today. Now, let me close out with this thought. What right did Elisha have, to, uh, did Elisha have to ask Elijah for a double portion of his spirit of prophecy? In fact, what did he mean by this? 
I think that it is quite clear when we remember that in the Bible we're dealing with a Hebrew culture so that Elisha was thinking in terms of the rights of the firstborn receiving a double portion of inheritance from his father when compared to what all others in the family would receive. In fact, we'll notice that in verse 12, as Elisha watches Elijah go up, that he shouts out, Abba, Abba, my father, my father. Elisha was asking to take over from Eliyahu all the rights and privileges and heavenly authority that Eliyahu had possessed and displayed. Such would put him at the highest level of prophetic inspiration on earth above all the remaining prophets. We're going to continue with the translation of Elijah into the heavens next week and look at a surprising New Testament connection to it.